Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, my name is Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician. I'm also chair of the Joma Preventative Health Committee, and I'm super excited to be here today with Dr. Amy Barron. Hi. How are you? Good. Thank you for coming here and doing this with me. Dr. Barron is the founder and executive director of I Was Supposed to Have a Baby, a nonprofit organization that utilizes social media to support Jewish individuals and families as they are struggling to have a child. It provides a warm and nurturing space for those going through infertility, pregnancy loss, infant loss, surrogacy, or adoption, in addition to connecting those families to resources in the Jewish community at large. Dr. Barron was formerly the Director of Innovation and Growth at Nehama Comfort, and has also worked as an attending pediatrician in the newborn nursery and neonatal intensive care unit at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital before taking a leave of absence after her third miscarriage. She lives in New York with her husband and five children. So I thank you so much for doing this with me today. And I wanna start with your story. Before I start, are you working as a, a pediatrician now or is this what you do professionally? Right, so first of all, thank you. Thank you for the honor of being here. It's, um, I, I always, I really relish having these kinds of discussions because it means that my story and just the general um, stigma around infertility and loss will be dispelled a little bit more as we reach more people. So thank you for allowing me to be here. Um, Secondly, no. So the answer is I left pediatrics when I was in the midst of my um, I had a number of miscarriages, which we'll get into in a second. um, And I left pediatrics because frankly, even at that point when I had three children at home, I just, I couldn't keep taking care of other people's babies. It was just too hard. Mm -hmm. And that was um, 10 years ago at this point, 10, 9, 10, 11, something like that years ago at this point. And I intended to go back to pediatrics, but I did not. And that's kind of the story about how I started um, working in this space, which we'll get to. But the the short answer to your question is no, I do not work as a pediatrician anymore, even though I maintain my licensure and mm-hmm. you know deal with lots of strep throats and ear infections for my mm-hmm. own kids and, and neighbors and friends. So yes, yeah, still do a little bit of that. So what is your story? Let's go and find out what your story is. Because that's a great way to start because that's really, you're behind this. This is what you do. Right. So thank you. Um, yeah, look, I, I you know, I, I'm, I went to medical school. I, I, was the, I, I was the person who always knew that I wanted to be a doctor. I, mm-hmm. you know, from the time that I was very little, actually, I, I think at one point I wanted to be either an actress or a doctor. And I think this was just a little bit more of a stable profession. <laughs> um, and, but, but the truth is, is that I also always knew I wanted to be a pediatrician. I, I love children. I was camp counselors. I was, you know, constantly babysitting. It was, you know, and, and also in medicine, pediatrics for me was the place that was the happiest in medicine. It just like kids usually get better, even mm-hmm. if they're really, really sick. And so like I I really like pediatrics was the place where my heart was. And I 
I, I actually even got sort of that message in medical school when I was doing my OBGYN ro rotation and I was in the middle of a delivery and, you know, the mother's pushing and, um, you know, the baby comes out. And so I bring the baby over to the warmer to do the APGAR scores and, you know, I'm with the baby and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, like, I was on my OBGYN rotation. So my attending says, Amy, you're actually like over here, like back at the mother, like she's your patient, not, <laughs> not the little one in the warm I was like, the same way. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, right. I need to be over there. And I was, was like, that's not way. so interesting. I know. <laughs> I said, <Say> right, <laughs> right. You as a pediatrician also, like I'm sure we all have these moments in our OBGYN rotation. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, anyway, so I went into... Um, I started residency, finally met uh, the person that I was going to marry, my husband, and we got married and thankfully got pregnant very quickly and had my daughter within the first year of marriage, still while I, while I was a resident. And at that point, we, because I was still working 90 hours a week and things were crazy, I, you know, spoke to my Rev and we, he gave us dispensations that I could go on birth control until I finished my residency and through the time that I took my board, just to kind of like get that over with. And then we would go off birth control and start trying again. Um, so that was another year-ish, something like that. Um, and I went off birth control and just didn't get pregnant and didn't get pregnant and didn't get pregnant and didn't get pregnant. And finally, like, we're like, okay, something clearly is off. Um, we saw a reproductive endocrinologist who tested both my husband and myself, and it was just unexplained. There was nothing they could find that was wrong with me. There was nothing that they could find in terms of his sperm. Um, so they're like, okay, why don't we just do, you know, Clomid and IUI, which we did first time and I get pregnant. We're like, oh, great. Like that was easy. Like, no big deal. That was easy. Can I interrupt and your story for one minute? Sure. Sure. <laughs> Just because I think people listening, you know, um, I want to clarify in your particular situation, you were on birth control, but yep. this, what we're calling secondary infertility, in other words, yep. struggling to have a baby after successfully, you know, having one um, can happen without any prior change. Correct. So I just Correct. want to make so, that clear. So someone thinks, okay, well, this happened to you because you use birth control. No, definitely not. Look, we do know that the really about six months after you use birth control, it can really like mess up your cycles. Mm -hmm. And it, it does have an effect in terms of, you know, when you're actually ovulating and so on and so forth. But this was, I was quote infertile, meaning I wasn't getting pregnant for well beyond that six month period. I think it was it was about a year that we were trying before we got before we ended up going for testing. So the and and I'll, I'll go back and even say you may have discussed this on some of the other podcasts. You know the the cutoff is basically if you're under 35, you the recommendations are that you should be trying for a year before you start to seek intervention. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of going to a reproductive endocrinologist, if you're between um, 35 and 40, you should try for six months before you reach out to a reproductive endocrinologist. Mm -hmm. And if you're over 40, the recommendations are that you should try for three months. And if you don't get pregnant, then you should see a specialist. So for me, because I was uh, 28, 20, 29 at that point, you're so young. I was under the 35 mm -hmm. um, uh, age limit. So for, you know, for that 
period. So I, we tried for a year. Yes, of course, like the first six months was sort of coming off birth control, but a year was a year. And we made the decision to start looking for explanations as to why I wasn't getting pregnant. Right. I'm not done with thinking about this birth control part. I just want to, I want yeah, to dig yeah. a little deeper to what do we know about unexplained infertility after birth control versus say someone who wasn't using it. I'm just curious. Um, you know, it's a good question. I, I, I'm not really sure that I know the answer to that, mm -hmm. frankly. I, I'm not sure, you know, look, there, there are, you know, the statistics are, you know, between one in six and one in one in eight couples that experience infertility. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same. And, and that infertility statistic is the same, whether it's primary infertility or secondary infertility. Um, I frankly don't know. Um, what that number is, whether someone, if you were on birth control beforehand or if you were. And I, I think, look, the, as someone, the general recommendations are to try for a year. Mm -hmm. um, and we, and as someone who living in the Jewish community, living in the from community, I'm like, you know, I, I feel like I had this like biological clock that was ticking. Mm -hmm. Like everyone around me was having kids. And I was like, I just can't wait any longer. Like I'm not getting pregnant. Like it was clear we didn't have problems. I got pregnant within three months with my daughter. Like, so what's going on now? Like, it was this medical mystery of like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why am I not getting pregnant now? And we're like, okay, it's been a year enough, like time to go. Right. And this happens not infrequently. And again, yes. I just don't want people to get stuck on you had birth control and therefore this happened. That is not, right. not, not true. It happens to a significant percentage. What is the percentage do we have numbers? Because it's, it's percentage of in terms of unexplained secondary infertility. Do we have numbers for that? Because it's not that uncommon. Um, I I frankly don't know those numbers, mm -hmm. honestly. But um, I think it's, the I, point is, it's not that uncommon. It's correct. not uncommon to have miscarriages. It's not uncommon to struggle. And I think in the context of the from community, this can totally take over your life. Correct. I'll let you go back the, to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the what I would say in terms of statistics of miscarriage, mm -hmm. which we're going to get to in five mm -hmm. seconds, as you'll I'm going to continue telling mm -hmm. my story. Mm -hmm. The statistics of miscarriage are that you know one out of every four pregnancies, mm -hmm. not one out of every four couples. So that's mm -hmm. the difference between the statistics for someone who's infertile versus a miscarriage. For in for infertility, it's one in one in let's call it between one in six and one in eight couples mm -hmm. that it go through infertility. But for miscarriage, the number one in four is not couples. It's one in four pregnancies. Right. So the reality is, is that in the from community, when we're all trying to have lots of, lots of children, like we generally, our value is to have large families. Mm -hmm. Most people will have had a miscarriage in their fertility years. So look, I, and I'll tell you about mine right now. Um, okay. So I, um, you know, I got pregnant very quickly, you know, with this, like Clomid IUI, we get to the eight week ultrasound and there's no heartbeat. There, mm -hmm. There's just nothing. Um, and it ended up, um, I had a DNC at, because as a medical person, I didn't want to pass that naturally. I wanted to be able to know what those, um, the products of conception, I wanted to know, I wanted to be able to do testing mm -hmm. on that tissue so that I could, in my own mind, reconcile what this pregnancy was. So mm -hmm. that if it was a genetic abnormality, that this was a pregnancy that wasn't compatible with life. And I mm -hmm. could, while it was still terrible, 
and, and obviously sad because it was a pregnancy that we were dreaming about and desperately wanted after these years of infertility, I could at least sort of put it away a little bit in my mind because I knew it was a pregnancy that wasn't compatible with life. Mm -hmm. But if it came back that it was a healthy pregnancy and my body just wasn't unable to hold it, then that was a whole different ball game. Mm -hmm. And we needed to start investigating from a medical perspective, something very different. Mm -hmm. So I had the DNC and it came back that it was a trisomy. It had three mm. copies of certain chromosome at which made it incompatible with life. And that while obviously still upsetting that it happened, you know, we, we were able to move on after a period of time emotionally. Um, and then we still, you know, I'm still not getting pregnant. So then we moved to, I actually moved doctors. Cause I kind of, I actually had a, it was a little bit of a traumatic experience after the DNC. I had mm. some medical complications and I just wanted to see a different doctor. Um, and when we started with this new doctor, they recommended that we, instead of using Clomid, they felt they had more control over using inject the injectable medicines along mm. with the IUI. And so we did that, um, for one cycle and I did not get pregnant. And which was devastating because the other time like Clomid IUI just worked, like, why wouldn't this work? This is supposedly better. Um, and we couldn't try the next cycle because one of the side effects of these medications is that sometimes you end up with an ovarian cyst, which means that you can't then re-stimulate your ovary the next cycle because then that cyst can become dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and so we decided that cycle to do a natural cycle, just, you know, being intimate or having sex with my husband, <laughs> um, along with IUIs mm -hmm. through the clinic. And that cycle, I got pregnant with my son. So we, we don't know whether it was the IUI or whether it was just, you know, natural, quote mm -hmm. unquote. Um, but he came nine months later. And from that point on in my story, infertility was not part of it anymore. I, however, the unexplained infertility came, it just left. Um, and so thinking that I live in the modern Orthodox community, our community, generally speaking, we don't have 12, 14, 16 kids. We some usually have our families look like somewhere between three and six kids. So we, um, I stopped nursing after a year, got my period, got pregnant again, had my daughter. So I had three kids at home. And then again, like tried again, because thinking, you know, have three kids, thank goodness. Like, let's try again for our next child. Again, got pregnant very quickly. And then at 16 weeks, went into the office and there was no heartbeat. And I, oh. you know, I, at that point, like oh. for me, my line in the sand of when I got nervous was at eight weeks because mm -hmm. my second pregnancy only lasted to eight weeks because there was never a heartbeat. And so what the doctors, you know, when I'm in the medical profession, what mm -hmm. everyone always said is once you have a heartbeat, everything is fine. Just make it past that eight week mark. You have a heartbeat, everything is good. And so with each of these pregnancies, with my son, with my daughter, and then with this 16 week loss, like I had already made it past eight weeks. So the fact that I walked into an appointment and, you know, it's before you feel any fetal movement. So I had no sense of the fact that this pregnancy was not a good one. I wasn't bleeding. I wasn't cramping. I, there was nothing. Um, I just walked in and I had no heartbeat. So look, I mean, 
I don't have to tell you about the devastation. We can talk about that afterwards, but I just want to continue with the story first. Mm -hmm. um, there was no medical explanation for that uh, pregnancy. We, um, I had a DNE, which is a procedure to take the baby out, and the baby was tested, and the baby was perfect genetically, mm -hmm. and I had no medical problems, and so it was just kind of like chalked up to like, you know, this is a fluke. It happens. Like my OB said, just try again. And like, I'm sure everything is fine. You have three kids at home. Everything will be fine. And so again, because getting pregnant, not my problem anymore. Um, you know, we waited a few months, tried again, got pregnant. And again, at this time, 17 weeks, the pregnancy was not good. And there was no heartbeat. And again, no indication, no bleeding, no cramping, and again, a perfect, genetically perfect baby. And this exact scenario happened two more times in the span of about two and a half, three years. Um, and so I lost four genetically perfect babies, two boys and two girls. And there was not a single medical professional in the United States who could tell me why I was losing these pregnancies. It was wild. It was, oh. it was always at either 16 or 17 weeks. And I just, I, I mean, it was like this hole that just kept getting blacker and blacker and blacker and blacker. And I, I was just a mess, a mess, a mess, a mess. Um, We'll, we'll come back to this, but I just sort of want to give you the, the end, as I keep saying. Um, we, you know, at, after this fourth loss, well, you also know from the beginning of our discussion here today, after the second loss, I stopped working as a pediatrician mm -hmm. because I just couldn't take care mm -hmm. of other people's babies anymore. E again, even though I had three children at home. Um, but we were in the midst of this, like trying to have a, another child and it just, like, it just kept happening. Um, you know, after that fourth loss, I, like my husband and I basically looked at each other. I'm like, I, I, I'm like broken in every possible way, emotionally, physically, like hormonally, like I'm just broken. And I just, I was like a shell of myself. Um, and I, I said, like, I just don't think we can do this anymore. Like I, I uh, we, I, like, I, I can't do this anymore. And we stopped and we just stopped and didn't think about it and didn't investigate and didn't do anything. And we just stopped. And then about like a year plus later, I, I kind of turned to him and I said, look, I know that with enough therapy and enough support that I'll be fine if we only have three children, mm -hmm. but I need to know that we've done everything possible to try to have another child. Like I have to do the hishtablis here. Like I have to, like, because you have to understand, like there were, there were times like, in our investigation, we saw lots of different kinds of health practitioners. We saw the MDs, we saw the DOs, we saw the 
you know, homeopathic doctors, we saw the nutritionists, we saw like, we saw all kinds of different practitioners just to get a sense of what they might think was going on here because no one could give us any answers. And as a science person, as a, as a, as a doctor, mm -hmm. I'm a person that believes in research. I'm a person that like, I can't get behind a modality or a medication or anything unless I see the research. I want to see what has been done, what has been proven, and then I'll get behind it. So there, there were a lot of things that people threw at us over these years, like, oh, you know, in my practice, we, my practice, we do X or like, I think you should try this or like try this herb or try like things that, and I would say, show me the research. Like, I'm happy to do it if it's not dangerous, if it's financially feasible, but just show me the research and nobody could. And so like, meaning not nobody, like was the research that acupuncture helped, you know, with fertility issues? Yes, but not for loss. Was the research that, um, you know, but there was starting to be some like very rudimentary research about the field of reproductive um, immunology, about giving intralipids or IVIG to patients who were um, constantly losing pregnancies that maybe their bodies were, were having this immune response mm -hmm. to the placenta and attacking the placenta. And that was what was causing the loss. Like those were things that were just sort of coming to the fore, but there was no one that could show me hard data. And I, I basically turned to my husband and I said, like, look, like, yes, are we getting brachos from all of these different, like, you know, Rabbanim and we're going to Davin at this one and like doing all these segulos, like, are we doing all of that? Are we doing the Ruchnius piece? Absolutely. But I also need to know, Hishtadlos wise, that I've done every possible thing that's not dangerous and is financially feasible because I, I don't think I'm going to be able to live with myself if I don't at least try one more time and do all of these things. Um, I have a question. So when you did. say do all of these things, sure. just because you mentioned homeopathic, you mentioned alternative, and yeah. I'm really curious, did you do those things even though they didn't have research or did you not? I hope it's okay that I asked. So that. yeah, please. So, so the answer is for this pregnancy, I did it all. Like, okay. you know, stand on your head every mm -hmm. second Tuesday, you know, eat gluten-free be before like, you know, even like eating that was, you know, something that was people were advising even, even if you weren't celiac, you know, bed rest the entire pregnancy, even though we have no idea why you lost the pregnancy, like all, anything that anyone had suggested, we did. Cause um, I want to, I want to take a point, take a minute and just have everybody think what that means here. You're a physician and we were kind of taught if it's not proven, like you said before, then you shouldn't bother with it. But right. here's something where you didn't have a medical explanation. And I think I would love physicians to hear you say that many times over, because this happens in many conditions that we don't understand something. And then there's alternative treatments and particularly from a um, spiritual standpoint. Yep. You're hishtadlis. Yes. Right. Doesn't mean people should be taken for a ride and 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 manipulated or you know financially bilked of their resources, but it also doesn't mean that people should be dismissive of so-called alternative, not yet proven therapies because you just don't know. Correct. Look, I I, I am the first one. So so I'll, I'll, I am the first one who is a skeptic of all of these mm -hmm. individuals who I view as being mercenary and really preying on people who are desperate for. Mm -hmm you know, for, for medicines or desperate for answers when they're, 
especially in the fertility space. I mean, I've heard dozens, if not hundreds of stories of people who are, you know, charging thousands of dollars for a consultation just to like say like here and now buy my personal right. line of this and this and that. Like I, I, I am, and I went to those appointments. We, you know, we, we borrowed money. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I went to those appointments because I was also desperate. Right. But, I, I, correct. But, but at the end of the day, like we, we made the decision that if it was financially feasible, like I've said this already, if it right. was financially feasible and it wasn't dangerous, mm-hmm. we were going to do it. Right. And we did. Um, right. And that's and, an important point, just again, for physicians, for people yeah. to hear that we shouldn't be judging, you know, when there is this area like this, where we don't know, you don't know where your you know, help is going to come from and, and people shouldn't be judging. Right. So, so I, so, so I'll say that there were sort of three main areas besides the like stand on my head and like, you know, gluten-free and bed rest. Mm-hmm, there were mm-hmm. three main areas that were theories about the, about why I kept losing these pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, theory number one was that it was as yet an undiagnosed genetic disorder that my husband and I were carriers for something or we, because we had both been tested, we'd seen by this woman named Diana Bianchi, who's the foremost geneticist at that time in the United States. Um, and um, she had tested us for every known disease that was testable at that time. Mm-hmm. And my husband and I were carriers for none of those. Mm-hmm. So her hypothesis was that maybe it's some as yet undiagnosed genetic disorder. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Two was that maybe there was a a hematologist who had done a lot of work in his training um, with women who had um, lots of losses, who found that um, when give, even if they did not have a thrombophilia, meaning a propensity to to clotting, Mm -hmm. that giving those women um, blood thinners would have a better outcome for those pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of in the infancy stages then. And like we're talking, so we're now talking about um, eight years ago, between eight and nine years ago. And it was starting to, those those uh, medications like Lovenox were starting to be used in Israel, but that really weren't used mainstream in the United States yet at that time. Um, so he put me on blood thinners and therapeutic doses of blood thinners, not just like take 40 milligrams and like call it a day. He mm-hmm. put me on therapeutic doses of Lovenox. Um, and then there was a hematologist who I also saw, uh, sorry, a rheumatologist, excuse me, who, who I also saw who had my placentas from these pregnancies sent to a loss specialist who found these cells called trophoblast cells that were similar to cells that they found in placentas of patients who had lupus. And his hypothesis was that I was losing these pregnancies because my body was attacking it just like in lupus patients. And his recommendation was that I have monthly intravenous immunoglobulin Mm -hmm. infusions, IVIG. Um, So, which was all totally unproven. Like there were, there was no data. There was like, I had no diagnosis. I had no nothing. So we, again, like getting pregnant, not my problem anymore. At this point, I'm a little bit older. We get pregnant. I get to the first ultrasound. There are two heartbeats and thinking like I dropped two eggs and 
honestly, it didn't really matter because I was convinced that those babies were going to die just Mm -hmm. like all of my others. Like, why was this going to be any different? And I, I have twins who are seven and they're delicious and healthy. And I'm like crying (laughs) and they're, they're, they're miracles. They're my miracles. Like it's, we have no idea why that pregnancy worked and why all of the others didn't. It could have been any of the things and, you did. And yet they're here. It could have been any of the things you did. Correct. Who cares? Or nothing. Who cares? Or nothing, right? Right. 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 Um, wow. So look, I, yeah, I like, so, you know, that's the end, but, but sort of the beginning also in that I, um, you know, I, I took two years off to kind of like relish being with them. And frankly, I was totally traumatized by all of the things that I had been through with those losses. And it just, it took me a really long time to even come back to myself to like get over like the entire, they were delivered at eight months because I had some other complications in the pregnancy and they needed to come out early. But I spent every single day of that pregnancy petrified in a Mm. constant state of fear that they were going to die also. And that trauma, in addition to everything that I'd been through prior, like I just like, I was not myself for a long time. And it, it really took me a good two years before I felt like healthy, before I felt good, before I felt happy, before I felt like I even wanted to entertain the idea of going back to work. Um, And at that point, my job wasn't available anymore. They had given sort of that role in the, at Roosevelt, at St. Luke's over to nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. Um, And so I started to interview for pediatric jobs. And Right in that time period, I was asked to speak publicly in my local community about my experience with infertility and loss, but specifically about loss, because that's really the majority of my story. And we're talking now, you know, five plus years ago. And I, um, I felt at that point, we as a Jewish community were really on the cusp of starting to talk about these issues. Like I, I, what I always say is that we, you know, we're at least five to 10 years behind the general public. So like when the general public was talking about cancer and addiction and abuse and all of that, like we as a community were talking about it, you know, five years later. Mm -hmm. So the general community has been talking about infertility and loss for a long time already. And but we like literally like just started around five years ago on a public, you know, really in a more public forum. And so I felt comfortable doing that only because my losses, the majority of my losses were in the second trimester. And so everybody knew I was pregnant Mm -hmm. and then everybody knew I wasn't pregnant. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't this big secret that I was hiding. Like, yeah, people didn't know about the secondary infertility piece or that loss, but the majority of my story were these horrific, you know, very public losses. And so I, me sharing to more people about it was very different than sort of opening up about a story that nobody knew about before. Mm -hmm. Um, And so while like, you know, I couldn't sleep for three nights, 
it's beforehand. And I was like right. terribly nervous and, you know, not eating for the whole 24 hours. Also before my speech, I, I, I felt that I had to do it and should do it because if I didn't, then who else would, if I was already, you know, my story was already out there. Um, and at that point, I got introduced to a woman named Riva Judas, who runs Nahama Comfort, which is based in New Jersey, um, which is an organization that deals solely with um, helping in families deal with loss um, in the Jewish community. And I worked for, for them for three years and did you know lots of things for them, ran support groups and did a lot of speaking and ran their social media and fundraising and lots of stuff. But over, over my time there, I think because I'm a physician and because I was already sort of public with my story, lots of people started just calling me, emailing me, coming to me and saying like, hey, like I'm thinking about surrogacy because we can't get pregnant because like, what do you know about that? Or like, I've been struggling with infertility. Like I'm feeling so alone. Like, can you help me? Do you know anyone else who's dealing with that? can you help me? Like, what about this doctor? What about that doctor? Can you support me? Can you this do? Like, I was just fielding all of these calls. And at the same time, because I was running their social media and on social media myself, personally, I saw the emergence of the fertility support on social media in mm -hmm. general, I, specifically on Instagram. But I just saw more and more and more people, bloggers, and then accounts, and then organizations like pop up and really in a very beautiful and supportive way, like providing this meaningful comfort to people who felt so alone and felt they had nowhere else to turn. And what I also saw was that all of the Jewish fertility organizations while doing incredible work on the ground, like they, they all do, whether it's fertility or loss or deal with the medical piece or the financial piece, like whatever they're doing, they're all doing incredible work, but they were all providing it locally or mm. even internationally, but they were doing it sort of in a brick and mortar type of way. And no one was doing it virtually. No one was, no one in the Jewish community was doing what the rest of the world was doing for everyone else in terms of providing that support. And I said, like, I can do this. <laughs> like, I, I can do this. I, I, I I'm doing it do already. This. I was meant to do right, this. Right. Like, I, I'm like, I'm doing it already. Mm -hmm. So why not just expand? Mm -hmm. um, and so I did. And, you know, I, um, I left Nahama Comfort. I spent that summer. This was, um, I left Nahama Comfort in the spring of 2019 and launched. I was supposed to have a baby in August of 2019. I, I spent those months like really refining what it was I wanted to do and making sure that this was really a value add to the community as opposed to taking away from work that other people were already doing. Um, and I, and I started and I'm, I'm so grateful that it's been this incredible place of support for, I mean, it's I, like, I, I don't like to say it because I don't like to Even I like to myself, but it, it, it's helping thousands of people around the world 
And it's, it's for anyone who's struggling, whether it's loss, whether it's infertility, any aspect of those, those difficulties. It's people who are already at the point where they're considering adoption or surrogacy. We do support groups, we do individual counseling, we on a weekly basis talk about different topics that hit both the fertility and loss communities and get lots of people involved. We tell personal stories over and over again about what people are really going through. We do insta-lives on an almost weekly basis with different individuals in the fertility space, in the Jewish fertility space, in the medical space, people who are just offering wraparound support. Like it's, I'm so grateful that with the help of my board, we have a virtual assistant. Like this is, this is now a community and I'm, I'm just so grateful to be a part of it. This is so amazing. This is all on Instagram. It's all on Instagram. It's, you know, Instagram, it was by design, mm -hmm. always intended to be a virtual platform mm -hmm. so that people could access it wherever they were, whenever they were, you know, standing online at Costco, three o'clock in the morning in their bed while they're crying. Before the pandemic, this was always intended to be a virtual platform. And Instagram was chosen specifically because the demographic of Instagram is the like 20 to 40 year old. And mm -hmm. those are the individuals who are trying to have children. So Facebook wasn't appropriate because those are the older individuals. Um, Twitter is, it's just not enough. There's not enough there. Like I can't do right. enough with mm -hmm. the limitations of the content mm -hmm. to really do what I wanted to do on Twitter and some of these other platforms. So yes, it's, we do have a website, but the website really, talks about the services and leads you to go to Instagram. So how does therapy, you said you do individual and group counseling. How does that work on Instagram? Right. So we, so again, like I'm a doctor, but I'm not a therapist mm -hmm. and I'm not your doctor. So we've crafted, like it's, I, I say therapy, but really what my lawyers say, it's not supposed <laughs> to be called therapy. The poor it's group. Called, it's called peer to peer individualized or group counseling, group um, support, 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 not counseling, group. support, correct. Support group, so, which is very therapeutic so, for many people. Correct. So there are group support. Um, we offer three monthly groups. One is for anyone struggling with infertility, whether it's primary or secondary infertility. We, our second group is the loss group, miscarriage, stillbirth, or even early infant loss. Um, and the third group, which is now in our third month, um, is we, we offer a support group for those who are considering or doing or have done egg, sperm, or embryo donation. Mm -hmm. um, and they're all done virtually. Now, they're are these all, all facilitated by a professional? Uh, you're, you're, I would say you're looking at her, but you're now talking oh. to her. Okay. So, so you facilitate uh, all have, of them? No wonder you have yes. a full-time job doing yes. this. Yes, exactly. So I, I've gotten training um, from... Uh, it's called, so I specifically got group, I got grief counseling training and group facilitating training um, when I was working through with Nahama Comfort through this organization called Resolve Through Share, mm -hmm. which is um, based in Wisconsin. And so that was where I developed this training in addition to like on the job training as I was working for Nahama Comfort. And so I've moved that over to this, to this support. 
Um, and we also do one-on-one -on -one, that if people, you know, often what happens is people are like, I, I just need to talk to somebody about what's going on. Like somebody who gets it. Like, I don't need a therapist. Like I have a therapist, mm -hmm. but I just want someone to talk to, talk to me about like all of my feelings in this space. So we offer, also offer individual, the one-on-one the -on -one support. This is amazing. I totally get this because I have a daughter. I talk about this all the time. I have a daughter with disabilities and I, you know, also we never got a diagnosis. So I know what it, you know, it feels like to try to go all over the place, you know, even though we don't necessarily, you know, have an answer. And I know what it feels like to reach out to people who've been through something similar. It's, there's no comparison to that, to talking to someone who may not have lived it. Someone who lives it is on a whole other level. Right. And, and there's, look, there are so many organizations that do what, what they call and what is called like this peer to peer support, right? Like they, they match people up who have gone through similar situations and they, they do, they match people up one-on-one -on -one, that, that peer support. And that's a beautiful, those are beautiful programs. So we don't do that because I, I don't need to replicate what other organizations are doing. Mm -hmm. They do that beautifully. What, what we do is we offer this group setting which brings together people from all across the country and or the world sometimes into these settings and the individual support also. But the power of social media, the power of Instagram, of creating this community, you know, I, I can put a story up. The, the one story we put up recently was about primary ovarian insufficiency when your ovaries don't really work anymore and mm -hmm. don't produce eggs. So therefore you can't get pregnant. And the heartbreaking story was actually from a woman who is an OBGYN mm. and she takes care of all of these patients. And yet she herself oh, wow. cannot have, and she actually has two children and they were a struggle to even get these kids. And she, like, she talks about how, like, she feels this push and pull, like she loves her career, but she's over and over again, like, she's like miscarrying in her office and she's like, like not able to get pregnant and she's not able to, you know, be in the place where she's watching and, and supporting all of her patients and the outpouring of love and support and, and just like warmth for this woman, this anonymous woman who obviously, you know, she didn't want to out herself. And mm -hmm. we absolutely allow that, allow for that here. People mm -hmm. can be anonymous or they cannot be anonymous depending on what they're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to out herself because she didn't want to make her patients feel uncomfortable, right? right? And she also didn't want to make her colleagues feel uncomfortable, but she desperately needed this support and this outpouring from the community of, my gosh, like, you know, we, we, we're so sorry you're going through this. Like, I, I, we can't even imagine how can we help you? People giving suggestions, people just saying like, my heart is breaking for you. I'm holding space for you. Like, it was like, there were hundreds of comments on this one story. Like that's the beauty of social media. When you, you put up something that's powerful and people relate to it, they see themselves in it and they want to, even from the depths of their own pain, they still want to be able to give over and give over that like love and support. And it's just, it's a beautiful thing to watch, honestly. This is really amazing. You know, the truth is we, we, we had planned on talking about so much more. I think we're going to have to do part two because once we start, we're not going to be able to stop 
talking about. Like, I just want to say one thing that we need to talk about in the future is for people to understand, maybe not from the ultra-Orthodox or Orthodox world, why you might have children and find this so incredibly painful, the secondary infertility, which I, I'm hoping that people can hear from your story without having to elaborate. Um, and also with the emotional you know, journey that you go through with that, with that last pregnancy, that's a whole story. Oh, I, look, I was going to say that that's, that's another podcast. It's not that's a short, it's not a short yeah. answer. And I get that. I really get this. I want to thank you so much. And we have to do part two, part three, or maybe you'll bring me on an Instagram live or something. And I can talk with you. Yeah, about it. We will do, we will do all of it. We will do all. all right. Thank you so much. They're working on my roof. I'm going to go. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Be well. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.